Well, it seems familiar to me. I've probably told it before, but just pretend you've never heard it. There's a story about a woman who bought a parrot. She bought a parrot. Has anyone ever owned a parrot, actually? I see them on TV a lot, and, you know, and I just, my mom had, had parakeets, and I remember being a little kid, I thought, well, this parakeet, we're going to have a bird that talks, and that parakeet couldn't do anything, you know. It just squawked when it wanted something to eat, and that's kind of like every other animal that's in my life right now, you know. But this parrot talked. Uh, it was a unique parrot because the parrot's previous owner had, well, let's just say that the previous owner had made this parrot familiar with all manner of foul language. Uh, he had a very, very unpleasant and very challenging vocabulary. And so the woman who bought this new parrot, being an avid, evangelical, faithful, and obedient Christian woman, she was determined that she was going to reform her foul-mouthed parrot. This was her mission. This is what she was going to do. And her strategy was a replacement therapy. She was going to teach him, and that's a good thing. You know, we work on this. She was going to teach him new things, positive things, to eliminate the old. She was going to replace what was bad with something that was good. And it went relatively well. I mean, she started this thing. She worked with this parrot every day to basically to exercise him of all of his evil words and phrases and teach him new words and it was going well but one day the old bird let one slip and the parrot didn't mean to but just one nasty word came out and apparently it was a big nasty word because our righteous woman cringed she she was frustrated that all of this progress had been set back we had us a relapse and she lost her temper to be honest I mean she lost her temper she grabbed that parrot out of his cage around the neck and shrieked, I will teach you to never talk that way again. And she strutted across the room, threw open the lid on her big chest freezer, and threw the bird inside and slammed the lid. Then she went and sat down in her favorite chair to calm down. She read her Bible. She prayed. And just a couple minutes later, she went over and opened up the freezer, and she picked up the bird and held him up. And he was kind of limp, kind of cold. And she asked the bird, have you learned your lesson? And this parrot responded with this horribly shaky voice, yes, madam, I've learned my lesson. And so it was a lesson learned. And that old foul-mouthed bird, he was back on the road to verbal righteousness. I mean, he was getting back where he needed to be. Well, our feathered fellow did really well for a few months, and then he had a severe relapse. One day, this bird unleashed a string of profane words that rocked our Christian woman to the core. And she angrily, again, snatched that foul-mouthed bird from the cage. Once again, she deposited him in time out in the family freezer, but this time in the fervor of her emotion and in the intensity of her prayer, she forgot him. She forgot she put him in the freezer, and when she finally realized that her, she'd abandoned her, her bird in the frozen chamber, she was horrified. She ran to the freezer and plucked him out, and she examined him, and he was still clinging to life, but he was almost frozen to death. She quickly wrapped her parrot in a, in a wool blanket, and she cuddled him close like a little infant child, and slowly but surely, her beloved parrot began to thaw, and his little tiny eyelids fluttered open, and he began to move, and the woman was relieved, obviously. She was relieved because she thought, I almost killed my parrot, and, 
And through tears of joy, she still had to find out if, it was, if this bird was learning his lesson. She asked him, now I'm so sorry, child, I'm, that I did this to you, but, but tell me, did you learn your lesson? And the bird mumbled, yes, madam. And then finally, after a few more minutes of cuddling and shivering, the parrot spoke up and he said, madam, might I ask you a question? And she said, well, of course. And the parrot said in a broken voice, Madam, I, I thought I knew every foul word of the English language, and surely I have heard them all and, and said them all, but now I know that I must have been mistaken. Because what on earth must that turkey in that freezer have said to you? <laughs> right? Today we're talking about foul language, and those words should pop up somewhere. Foul language. Oh, yeah. Now, friends, we're no, we're no strangers to foul language in our culture, are we? I mean, we live in a, what I'm convinced is a pretty rapidly devolving society. What we once regarded as common decency is becoming something of a rarity. Words that were once banned from broadcast in America or, or at least sentenced to the realm of paid cable TV have now become commonplace in prime time and sometimes in the daytime. And now everything that has to do with media in our lives in any form, it comes with labels. It comes with warning labels. Have you noticed that? TV shows have a, a warning label that comes up and tell you, tells you how it's rated. You might not realize as parents, but the music that your children buy it comes with labels and warnings. Video games have ratings, labels, warnings. Our movies have had ratings for years. We kind of got used to that. And yet even with all of the warnings, our children, our younger generations are being exposed to more and more graphic material, obscene material, and definitely more language. And it's occurring at an earlier and earlier age. You know, there's stuff now... And, you know, I'm telling my age. I never thought I would act like this and think like this. But, you know, there's stuff on TV now that would have been R-rated when I was a kid, you know, that I wouldn't have been allowed to see. Sometimes I see stuff pops up on TV, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, that, that might have gotten an X back in the day. It's crazy what's going out over our airways if we actually still had them. Everything's coming through a cable now. But it's just amazing what media has unleashed upon our culture. And, and this illicit material, these foul words, they make it pretty quickly from our, from our minds and from our ears, and they find their way to our mouths. And it definitely happens in the lives of our children. You just, all you have to do, and I know we have educators in here, but just ask some of the educators in the room about how language in the classroom has changed in the past 10, 15, 20 years. How things that used to only be said in whispers in the hallway are now said openly in the classrooms. And said openly to our teachers is pretty amazing. The human mind and its connection to the mouth are pretty plain and simple. There's an old computer principle. Back in the days, you know, children, before we had computers, you know, when we learned all about them when we invented computers not too terribly long ago, um, there's this principle that we used to say in, in the computer business, and it's simply this. You've heard it before. Garbage in, garbage out. You ever heard that? If garbage is going into a system, that's what you're going to get out of the system. You can't expect to put garbage into a system and expect diamonds to come out on the other side. It doesn't work that way. You're going to get what you invest into something. You're going to get out of your mouth what you invest in your eyes and in your ears 
and in your mind. And so as believers, we have to come up with a strategy. We, we, we've got to do something to deal with this in our own lives because we're not immune to foulness of speech, are we? Are we? Because I'm not. I spent some years in the Army. I know words and stuff and phrases that you never heard of. I mean, I've heard a lot of things, and every now and then, when I get in that process, of, you know, despite my ministry calling, despite being a student of the Word, there are sometimes when things pop up and things come out before I know they come out, and, and, because, and they had to come from somewhere, so they're in there. They, what's in is going to come out. And so it's true. We are all, it, it, from time to time, we can experience what, what I'm calling this message today, just a slip of the tongue. Although, actually, we know that it's really not just a slip of the tongue. But I wanted to give it that title anyway. We, as the people of God, have to go to the Word of God with regularity, I think, these days, for some much-needed reminders regarding the way we talk. Our speech, and today is one of those reminder days. I want us to consider together, just as a foundation, some, some warnings in the Scripture regarding language within the body, within the people of God. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul said, No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need. In Ephesians 5, 4, same letter, he said, Obscene and foolish talk or crude joking are not suitable. In his letter to the Colossian church, in chapter 3, verse 8, he said, But now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. In Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, Jesus said, I tell you that on the day of judgment, People will have to give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. My friends, that's some of the most horrifying verses in Scripture, aren't they? Because we float words these days without a thought. We just unleash things and, and, and let them go. Clearly our Lord... Clearly, because he's inspired this in his word. Our Father, our God is no fan of coarse language. He's no fan of foul speech. And he's left us these reminders. He's left us a lot more. And so we're going to dig a little deeper into this today and, and examine what God has to say about these moments when we believers might experience that proverbial slip of the tongue. Okay? So let's pray. Let's pray and get our hearts ready. And then we'll go deeper. Pray with me. Heads bowed. Eyes closed. Get into a place where you can have some personal time with God. Father, today your word confronts us about an all-too-common problem in our culture today. Today you're calling us to account for the words that we speak, the things that we say. And we we all struggle from time to time with unseemly words, with, with, with coarse language. But I, I just pray that you'll remind us of your never-ending, never-halting call to holiness. We know it's common sense that people know us by our words. People remember the words and the things that we say. And, and we actually develop reputations from our words and the things that we say to people, the things that we say about people and the ways that we treat people. And I pray that this day you will help equip us 
to find some of the tools that we need to establish excellent reputations among the people of our community. Help us to become known as people who live well, but also speak well. Help us to be different from, from this, this coarse, irreverent world that seems to surround us and help us to, to form patterns of speaking that are filled with grace, that, that are centered upon peace. Help us to say words and say things to people that would build them up and never tear them down. Show us today, Lord, that our foul speech and our foulness of spirit, they're never just slips of the tongue. What they are are these outpourings from our hearts. What is on the inside will find its way out. So lead us, encourage us, compel us to do what we must do to change what is wrong on the inside so we can impact what's coming out to the outside. And this is how we pray together as your church in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we all finished our prayer as we normally do in the name of Jesus. And my friends, this leads us perfectly in the first realm, the first area of the type of speech that we have to avoid, the speech that we must avoid as the people of God. And go ahead and write number one down for me, and then we're going to stay here for a while. I'm talking about first abusing the name of God, the name of God. You know, our pop culture has developed a verbal art in which God's name is added to various partner words to form a profanity like a contraction. You know, God's name is placed together with profane words. You just add Jesus to this or God to that, and I mean, you can accentuate it. Really helps your profanity, takes it to a new level. That's what our culture does, and and, and yet there there's never ever a, a time when the name above all names. You know what I'm saying? The name above all names should be used in this way. Where the soul-saving, life-changing name of Jesus Christ should ever be used as an oath of anger or an oath of profanity. And obviously, we as believers, we need to avoid, avoid practices like this uh, because God has placed some boundaries. He's placed boundaries upon our speech. I don't know if you realize this or not, but God lays out a very, uh, like a definitive boundary in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. God's word proclaims, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Where is this passage found, by the way? Where is this verse located? Does anyone know? Huh? It's one of the Ten Commandments. So this is in God's top ten. This means it is a, a, a timeless principle. It is a universal principle. It touches every part of the human soul. God will not tolerate the abuse of his beautiful name. And in fact, the word promises he's going to punish the abuse of his name. And folks, that, that's scary. That's scary. This is an especially vital principle for us believers because we are different. We are called to be different. We have an intimate relationship with God. That should make us respect that name above all names even more than anyone else in our world, anyone else in the culture around us. 
So again, I want us to dig a little deeper on this. I, wanna, I want us to think about some specific reasons why we must not abuse this name of God. In case you didn't know, we're gonna, I want to give you something to write down to take home with you today. Of course, first off, this is the first one. We already said it, but he's commanded us not to, right? Commanded is your word. And I'm just referring to the verse we just read, Exodus 20, verse 7. I mean, we've almost covered that part sufficiently. God declared it thusly. He, this is what he said, and that's, that's enough said, okay? But something else that's really important that we need to understand when it comes to the name of God is that his name has tremendous meaning. Please write that word down, meaning, and then put a great big circle around it. You know, the naming of people is done quite differently today. In Scripture, people were named based upon their life. Sometimes it was an event in their lives. Sometimes it was the circumstance of their birth. But these Old Testament names especially, there's a depth of meaning. And the New Testament names you encounter are derivatives of those Old Testament names. And so people were named in in a deliberate way with a purpose. And maybe you were named that way as well. I know I was. My first name, you might not know it, but my first name is George. That was my father's name. And so I was named after my father, George. Now, he was named after his uncle, George, even though everyone called him Doc. I'm just glad I didn't get that name, right? But then my mother, God rest her soul. I love my mother. I wish I could have five more minutes with my mother. But she did something to me in the naming of me. My first name is George. My middle name is Jeffrey with a G, G G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. And so throughout my life, I've been geoff, geoff, geff, goff, geef, goof, goof, and sometimes Greg. <laughs> I don't get it, but I get it called it all the time. But I was named with purpose, at least the first part. The second name, my mom plucked out of one of those baby books in the 60s. And some of you know what I'm talking about. They had those little name books. You thought, oh, this will go with George perfectly. And I've been saddled with that moniker for all my days. Now, I have a grandson. His name is Andrew, uh, not Andrew, Jackson Hunter Baggett. I'm going to explain the Andrew part in a minute. Jackson Hunter. And uh, Hunter is a family name. Kim's brother's name's Hunter. Her dad's middle name is Hunter. And it's a surname that goes back generations of the family. But my second great-grandfather was Andrew Jackson Baggett. And it's Jackson's fourth great-grandfather. So we have these really cool family names. Now, I don't think we did that Jackson part with with deliberate, you know, it wasn't deliberate that it was a family name, but I claim it thusly because it was in my family line, you know. So we named with, with, with great deliberation. But now, you know, we live in the realm where times, sometimes names don't have any meaning at all. Because sometimes, y'all probably know, y'all know people, it seems like their parents were playing Scrabble, they dumped out the pieces, and however the, word, however the letters landed, people get named. You know, and it's, it's kind of bizarre sometimes. We just don't, I don't know how much we put in our culture anymore into the naming of people as was once done. But the name of God is a precious name. It's a deliberate name. The the name of God, and God is referred to by many names in the Scripture, and they all have deliberate meaning. We've talked about these before. Of course, we're familiar with Yahweh, right? The great I Am. And there's El Elyon. The, the most high God. This is just a, just a, a sampling. There's Jehovah Jireh, 
God has called this, and it means the Lord will provide. God has called Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. He's called Jehovah Saboth, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. And there are many, many, many. If you want to go deep into the person of God, do a name study of God in the scriptures. Do a study of all the ways, all the names that he has called or ways that, that the people of God referred to him throughout the scripture and you'll get a much better understanding of the heart of God and the nature of God and the person of God. But understand this, any misuse of the name of God because it reflects his character is an assault upon his character. The very character of our God. Let's take it a little bit further. Write this down. God's name is inseparably tied to who he is. His name is connected to his person and his being. David declared in Psalm 22, verse 22, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. To utter the name of God is to declare something about God. Therefore, to declare his name is some kind of a cuss word, is to curse God, to curse the name of God in any way that you show his name disrespect. And Christians, we must never forget this. Please write it down. That God's name has power. You realize that? God's name has power. At the name of God, waters have been parted. At the name of God, armies have been defeated. My friends, at the name of God, the sun was made to stand still. In the name of God, demons have been cast out. In the name of God, people have been healed of their diseases and sickness. In the name of God, the dead have been raised. So God has a powerful name. The name of Jesus Christ is power unto salvation. And we must never, ever presume upon that power that is in his name. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Such is the power of that perfect name. Amen. Now, there was once a mom who was concerned about her eldest son's use of, well, profanity, foul language. And, and it seems that the boy was developing no boundaries for his speech. And it got to the point where he even did not exercise boundaries at home and even in the presence of his mother. And let me tell you what, there was a day. There was a day. And some of you men, women, y'all know what I'm talking about. There was a day when you did not speak such a word in the presence of your mother. Y'all remember those days? And he, he, he didn't hold back. He said what he wanted to in the presence of his mother. Well, one day, this despondent mother asked a friend for advice, and her friend encouraged her, and you can't get by with this anymore either, but she encouraged her friend and said, you slap him. That boy says a nasty word in your presence, you ring his bell. You slap them jaws. And that happened, that happened to a lot of us, and we turned out okay, you know what I mean? 
Well, the next morning, her sons came down to the breakfast table, and she had every hope to have a redeeming day, you know, a, a good day. And, 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 and she asked the boys what they wanted for breakfast, and the oldest one replied, well, I want some blankety-blank lucky charms. Now, you fill in the blankety-blank. I'm not going to fill that in for you. Just try to imagine the, the, the words he used to describe his lucky charms. Well, when she heard those dreadful words come forth from his mouth, she reared back. She slapped that boy as hard as she could. I mean, meat popped. He saw the stars of the Milky Way for just a little while. I mean, he semi-lost consciousness for a moment. It took him a little while to recover. And he sat there dazed, rubbing his chin. And she looked at the younger boy sitting there beside him and says, Now, what do you want for breakfast? And he said, I reckon anything but Lucky Charms. right? I don't know about you and, and your home in the days of your youth, but I had some boundaries in my home, and, and my parents did indeed use foul words on occasion. They did, it's true, but they would not tolerate me doing it. And I remember uh, I could count my whoopings. I've told you before, on one hand that my daddy gave me, one of them was when I cussed him as a young boy. So I remember sitting on that Brady Bunch orange couch. Y'all know I'm talking about genuine naugahyde. And I said a foul word to my dad, and, and I, I, never, I never did it again. I never said a foul word in his presence again. He made me remember. I learned my lesson. And I tell you what, in a very small way, I want to remind you of, of one other form of speech that we just really need to avoid as Christ followers. I already talked about the name of God. That's, that's big. That's huge. But I'm also talking about, number two, just ordinary, just plain old filthy foul speech. What we call down here in the South cuss words, right? That's what we call it. Up north, they don't know what we're talking about when we mention this. But cuss words, you know, we have to master the simple truth that God has indeed placed boundaries upon the language of his followers. And, and as a good parent, he is a good parent. He is our father in heaven. He does not tolerate filth coming from our mouths. He just does not want it. Remember Ephesians 5. I'm going to we already read verse 4, I think. We're going to back it up a little bit into verse 3. I want to give you some context. He said, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. What I want you, the reason I gave you that context, I want you to see that Paul ranks our foolish talk, he ranks our crude jokes, our foul language, right up there with sexual immorality, right up there with impurity and greed. It is part of a very distinguished list. Things that we just kind of take for granted as a norm of culture are listed in the company of some heinous and sinful behaviors. And so in, instead of declaring profane words, Paul urges us to speak words of thanksgiving. He urges us, implores us to speak words of praise. But, but why? Why should, we, why should we be more careful and more circumspect than others when it comes to our words? Well, please write this down. You see your bullet on your paper right there. We're called to and commanded to be a, guess what? A holy people. Right? Are we not called to be a holy people? Goes all the way back to the Old Testament, Leviticus 20, verse 7. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. This is a declaration from, from God Himself. 
1 Peter 1.15, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. Same letter, 1 Peter 4.11. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. That's deep right there. You hear what Peter's calling us to do? If you're going to talk, talk like God would talk. Speak the words that God would speak. According to these inspired words from Peter and also from Paul, you know, there are certain behaviors that are proper for saints and there are certain behaviors that are not. And we have to master those things. We have to be master of those. We have to be careful about our associations, and that includes our word associations, the things that we say. Because if we speak like the world, we are identifying with the world. If we speak like the people of God, then we identify with and become identified with the body of Christ. I have a picture of a young fella right here. I want to put his picture up, just that first picture. You might not recognize him. His name is Desmond Doss. He would not touch a gun. He actually witnessed a fight between his father and his uncle that almost ended up in one of them being shot as, as a boy. And because of that event and because of a life-altering faith, uh, he refused to carry a weapon. He refused to touch a weapon. But it was World War II, and the United States Army needed men, and so um, young Mr. Doss surrendered a deferment that he had. He worked at the Newport News, Virginia shipyard, and he could have kept his deferment and never gone in the military because he had a critical job for the war effort. But he turned that deferment in and enlisted to become a medic. He wanted, he wanted to help people who had been injured in warfare. And he immediately came under personal attack. He went to basic training at, at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And that's where it all came out. You know, he had this misunderstanding that if he went in the Army, he could do it without touching a weapon if he's going to be a medic. And that was just the way he went about things, the way the recruiter talked to him. And, and so uh, he, he, he really caught flack at basic. Uh, uh, he was labeled as a conscientious objector. And that's, that's a person who refuses to fight in a war. We have that. That can happen. People can claim that status in the United States of America. But he actually called himself, he referred to himself as a conscientious cooperator because he wanted to be a part of the military. He wanted to do something good instead of something bad. His superiors tried multiple times to have him just drummed out of the army, but he persevered. He held on and he actually deployed in World War II with the 77th Infantry Division. And some of you have seen the movie about him. What the movie left out is that uh, he served as a medic on the island of Guam. He served as a medic in the invasion of the Philippines. But the action that made him legendary was at the Battle of Okinawa. And it was the battle for the bloody Medea Escarpment. And it was in April of 1945. Um, of course, it was called Hacksaw Ridge. And the men of the 77th and several other divisions tried to take Hacksaw Ridge. It was a heavily fortified ridge that could only be reached by climbing a net up 400 feet to reach the top of the escarpment. And, and the 77th and every other division that tried to attack was thrown off the ridge in one horrific attack. The, the 77th basically, they, they evacuated for their lives. They, they jumped over the cliff and climbed down that netting to, to get off of it. But Private Doss remained behind. And darkness fell. And throughout the night, this one man, this lone medic, found 
treated, then dragged a hundred men back to the top of that net and then lowered them down by hand by a rope over that 400-foot cliff. And, and this was in the movie, and it actually happened. He, he says that every time he lowered one more fellow, he, he prayed, Lord, help me get one more. Lord, just one more. Help me get one more. And he saved the lives of over 100 men. The regiment finally took that escarpment. It was a very high cost, but Desmond Doss was, was wounded. I, actually, I have a military picture of him actually taken um, on, on the field. Not at basic, but later on while he was serving. Um, but in a, a subsequent attack upon that escarpment, he was wounded by shrapnel from a grenade. And it was so bad that he was sent home. And, and it took five years, actually, for him to recover from his injuries and also from the tuberculosis that he contracted while he was overseas. But in the midst of all that, that repairing that was going on in his body and in his spirit, on October 12, 1945, and I have a, a color picture of this, President Harry Truman awarded him the Medal of Honor for his bravery and for his valor on Okinawa and for saving all those men under fire and at great risk to himself. And he was then, and he remains to this day, the only conscientious objector ever to have received our nation's highest honor, our high, highest military honor in battle. He never touched a weapon ever in the military. He never fi fired a single shot. And it's pretty neat in the movie. He, he admits it, but Desmond Doss, he was different. You know, he was different. He knew he was different. And the cool part about it was he didn't care. He simply refused to be pushed, to be pushed into doing things that he did not want to do, could not do because of his faith. He wanted to do what God had called him to do, what God had equipped him to do. And Christians, that's a lesson that really all of us need to learn. It's a, it's a concept that we need to appropriate and put to work in our lives as Christ followers. Simply put, please write it down. We are called to be different. Different. Different's okay. I know everything about our culture screams uniformity. We're supposed to blend. We're supposed to find our place and, and blend. And if you stand out at all, you know, it gets you picked on. And that's true. I discovered that at basic training really quickly. But we're called to be different. The Old Testament uses the best word to be a peculiar people, a different people. I urge you to listen to these words from the, from the pen of the Apostle Peter. And I want you to remember who Peter was. He was that loud, brash fisherman. He was that hard-headed Jesus follower who at one time actually denied following Jesus three times, but then when it came down to it, he picked up his cross and he followed Jesus Christ to the grave. And I want you to listen to his words. It's in 1 Peter 1. He says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. And set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 
If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. You know when that time is? You know when that time is? That's right now. Because this is not our home. We're just strangers here for a while. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Christian, hear me. Jesus gave his perfect, sinless, holy life for you. He did that for you. Now you must answer his call to holiness and to obedience. And folks, listen, that's a call that reaches all the way down to your vocal cords and touches the speech that comes forth out of your Christian mouth. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us command of the words that we speak. May we never, ever, ever show disrespect to your holy name. And I pray that we will separate ourselves from the gutter language of this world and seek out that measure of holiness and respect that you have called us to have in our speech. Guide us to say words that build up, words that always edify, words that always praise, words that are always words of encouragement. Guard our mouths, Father, by guarding our hearts. Because we know. We know that what comes out is the most accurate reflection there is of what is on the inside. So make our hearts pure, Lord. Give us discipline. Urge us on forward toward holiness and obedience and protect us and guide us from the destruction that can come from just a simple little slip of the tongue. And we pray this humbly in that beautiful and perfect name of Jesus. Amen. Look on the back of that worship guide, uh, not the back, but the card part. It's the little tear-out card. It says, My Decision Today. This is a discipleship message. That is what we do. But perhaps you have questions about how you can have a personal relationship with your Creator. You have questions about how you can know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. We want to talk to you about that. So if you have questions, please just check a box or or write a note to me, and then I will get you in contact with the right person. It might be me or it might be someone else who will talk to you about this, this faith matter or this crisis that you're dealing with or these questions that you might have. We want to give you the time you deserve to sit down and talk through those things and look at the Word with you. So you let me know, write down on that card, and we're going to collect those in just a moment. But before we do that, you say, like, Jeff, I've got like five things left. Man, i got blanks on my paper. And it's okay. It's going to move pretty quickly. But I want to share with you some strategies because we all need strategies to transform our vocabulary. It's amazing how easy it is to, to pick up things in our speech that kind of don't need to be there. We pick them up pretty, pretty easily. But then they become like these, they become like that, this rat living behind the wall that we can't seem to kill, you know? And, and so we need a strategy. We need some steps we can take, some things that we can do to gain command of the words that we say. I want, us bring, I want to bring us back to a verse. It's Ephesians 4.29. We looked at it earlier, but this is kind of what we're building from. 
No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need. Okay, so that's what we're building on. So we're going to hit these pretty quickly, one through five. Here's some strategies, and these are just, again, these are not divinely inspired. These do not come directly necessarily from the Word, but these are strategies to take what we've been talking about, the things we've learned, the warnings. We looked at warnings today, right? I mean, we've, we've considered warnings in the Scripture, how we can apply that in everyday life. What can I do to, to better reach that place of holiness in my speech? Well, here's number one. This is a huge recommendation. Remove the sources of this filthy language from your home and your life. Does that make sense? To go to the source, you know, whatever you're picking up, you know, if you get if 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 you're uh, if, if you develop an illness, it's it's not the illness itself, but it's the source of the illness that has infected you, and so you want to kill off the source. And so, whenever you have a symptom in your life that is on display, you have to attack the source. And so, we've got to what's coming out of us is what's coming into us. To, so, to change what's coming out, we've got to change what's coming in. Makes sense. Okay, okay, okay. Number two, this is the harsh one. Do not tolerate filth from your own mouths or from the mouths of your children. I'm in no way endorsing the ringing the jaws campaign of yesteryear, but neither am I saying that it doesn't work. I'm I will leave that to your own wisdom because I don't want them calling me from across the road over there or something. And they will. Uh, Number three, always instead fill your mouths with wholesome words. Right? You know, we, 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 we we, we have to realize we have choices that we make. And so if we choose the, the, the very foundation of the words that we speak, we make this decision that, you know, instead of that, that thing, that wrong thing, that mean thing, that foul thing, you know, we're just going to make a choice to have a different set of habits. We choose our habits. And so fill your, you know, the, once your way to not be filled up with something that's wrong is to be filled up with something that's right, okay? So that's a choice we make. Number four, always speak in a noble manner. And I just love that word noble. Y'all even know what noble, what does noble mean? What do you think? What's noble? Huh? Noble? Noble? No, he's like, no, blank. Noble. What's noble? Elevated. That's a great word, George. Elevated. Noble. You know, we we do so little that is noble anymore. We're kind of, you know, we're, we're so... I don't know, we're so like Blue Jean Friday about all of our lives, you know what I mean? We're informal, you know, we're just like, and there's not much noble left, and there's something to be said about noble, things that are, that are positive, that, that, are, that, are, that, are just, that are higher up, elevated than what everything else is that's around us, and, and we, we need to be looking for some, for some nobility in life again, and, and speaking in that way. And number five, just encourage to always speak in a way that's an encouragement to others. And things that are foul are rarely an encouragement to anybody, you know? I mean, they're just not. And so, again, those are just some strategies. You know, those are some practical things I want to encourage you to take into consideration, you know, in helping combat this. Because this is something, this is where we all need work. I mean, this is real. And now you're thinking, oh, Jeff, we had our requisite cussing lesson for the year. No, it's not that. 
I mean, we're, we're in this theme of, of training that tongue, and, 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 it's, and this is just one realm of it. This is one part of it where most of us have difficulty from time to time. Now, am I saying this is the un, unpardonable sin? You know, no. But it's like every other area of discipleship. The only way we're going to master it is to work it, right? And so we have, we, have, we have to work it. And some of you need to work it a little harder than others probably, you know. I don't know. You know. You know. The people around you know. Okay? So that's my encouragement for you today.